Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best lean not on our own understanding in all our ways acknowledge him and expect that he will direct our paths so grab your bible prepare your hearts and minds hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the holy spirit and then join me as we open up the treasures of god's word i have told you ad nauseum that I am not a trained minister. I'm not a trained theologian. I'm not an ordained pastor. I took up this position because, well, firstly, I felt led to do so, but also because I couldn't help but feel a bit cheated in my religious life. Following a childhood through adolescence on into young adulthood sitting in Catholic Church, I eventually started getting exposed to Bible-based ministries. And it was at that time that I started to hear things that I had never heard growing up as a regularly regular churchgoer. I began hearing sermons that were based on scripture and not church doctrine. And it really didn't take me long to be completely fascinated. Now, I know that some say that I'm always a little harsh on the church. I've been accused of being too difficult on the denominations. Well, I really don't care. I feel like telling it like it is. But stay with me, because you may be a bit surprised. So it's at, at that time when I started to hear things I had never heard before, I started to wonder why. As I said, I felt cheated. Why did it take so long for me to hear the things that I was starting to hear from God's Word? As time went on, I started listening more and more to these types of sermons. The more I learned about the Bible, the more I discovered how much I didn't know. And you know, in those early years, it's not as if opportunity was lacking to present these things. As I said, I was in church an above average number of times, certainly more than my friends. And maybe that was due mainly to the fact that I was an altar boy well into my teens. You Catholics know what that means. It just means someone that helps to serve at the Mass. Most people start that when they're eight or nine years old, and they stop by the time they're 12. I was 16 before I stopped being an altar boy. So I was in church a lot. In addition to that, my sisters and I went to church-provided religious education classes on Saturdays. But again, that was more centered on church doctrine and preparation for the ritual heavy sacraments than on any scriptural basis. We didn't learn scripture in those Saturday classes. I even attended a Catholic high school with rigorous 
Catholic education requirements. So as you can see, there was plenty of time and occasion to teach me the Bible. As I entered my teens, after having been ex exposed to biblical teaching through non-Catholic ministries, I became convinced that I would not find spiritual peace as a Catholic. I came to the conclusion that the church didn't and wouldn't put any more emphasis on thus saith the Lord than they had in my lifetime previous and then the nearly 2,000 years prior to that. The church was all too comfortable in going with thus saith the Pope, currently the boss, whatever his name was. Now, as usual, I'm going to say again, please hear me out. I realize that when I say things like this, it hurts some. It's not my intention to hurt anyone. All I'm trying to do is teach God's word, something I believe is lacking in churches today. And through this lesson, I want you to see how God feels about that. I want you to see how God feels about the failure of the church to lead us properly. As my story continues, and this is why I wanted you to hang with me, as my story continues... After leaving the Catholic Church, I found myself sitting in so-called, sometimes self-proclaimed, Bible-based ministries. I felt I became blessedly obsessed with God's Word. I couldn't get enough. I couldn't wait for Sundays to roll around, so I started doing personal study, something I never thought I would ever do. To be honest, in my youth, even though I considered myself religious, so-called, I found the Bible boring. It was at that time I would try to read it and then fall asleep, or I'd get so confused I'd come away frustrated. But once God's Word started opening up to me, I realized that if I wanted to truly experience the Word, I'd have to study it closely. And that's what I did. I'm on about 20 years doing that now. Well, in those early intense Bible study days, I actually came to the realization that the Bible wasn't originally written in that flowery, high and mighty sounding, and at times perplexing English language. I learned that the Bible was writ originally written to be understood. It was written not to wall people away, but to bring them in. After all, I realized that God wanted me to know him better through his word. And when I did discover that, I was hooked. I studied and studied and studied on my own more and more and more. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that even those so-called, sometimes self-proclaimed Bible-based ministries weren't any more spiritually helpful 
than what I had experienced growing up in the Catholic Church. I found out that although there was more scripture, I still wasn't being taught the whole story. Sure, I was learning more, but there was a lot being left out. My spiritual journey was being manipulated by the leadership of ministries for the benefit of either the leader or the ministry. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard that before, haven't you? You see, secular as well as Bible history tells us that men are greedy. It's not enough to have enough. Men want more than enough. And that usually means it has to be taken. So there are two ways to do that. Number one, men can knock each other over the head and forcibly take what they want. Now, the problem with that, though, is it's messy. And people have this annoying tendency to fight back when you're trying to take their stuff. And while that just complicates things and tends to make the whole enterprise a little dangerous. But still, some go this strong arm robbery route, and it does work sometimes for the more adventurous macho type. But since most people aren't big and strong and bold enough to maintain that lifestyle indefinitely, there was another way to get other people's stuff developed. Just persuade them to give it to you. Somehow convince people that you have something they want, or more importantly, some sort of power over them, then make it sound like it's their idea to give you their stuff, and by stuff I mean things and loyalty. Now, of the two methods we just discussed, the two methods of getting more than you need. This is the one with the path of least resistance, as well as the one that just so happens to be the most lucrative. When you have control over someone, it's amazing what they will do to make you happy. Now, there's a subset to this method. Now, hang on with me because I'm getting somewhere with this that relates to what I've been saying. There are different methods of getting people to do your bidding, which includes giving you their stuff. One way to convince them that you have power over them is to get them to fear you. Somehow convince the great unwashed that they must submit to you or else. Now that's effective for a time, but the funny thing about fear is that it actually has a shelf life. Eventually, people get tired of being afraid and they rebel, not because they aren't afraid anymore, but because they don't see fear as a desirable way to live. History, of course, is full of examples. I'm sure you could think of at least one or two yourself. But then there is a second and far more prevailing and durable way of exercising power over your fellow man. And that is to convince them 
that you and God are tight, convince the masses that when they please you, they're pleasing God. If you can persuade someone that you have their eternal soul in your hand, brother, there's little that person won't do for you. This is a very cynical view of church, John. Are you trying to tell me that all church leaders are only in it for themselves? Of course, I'm not telling you that. Neither, by the way, do I advocate disrespect nor anarchy, especially from the pews. But I'm simply warning you that you should not give total trust of your souls to men. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I'm telling you, as I tell you all the time, take responsibility for your own progress with God. Yes, gather for fellowship. Yes, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together but trust no one but God. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. In the original, it says the heart is mortally sick. You know, when something is mortally sick or mortally wounded, it means it's a wound or a sickness unto death. When you place your whole trust in man, when you place your whole trust in man-made institutions like the church, and I'm using, I'm not using the church in a sense that Jesus used it. Jesus used the word church simply to mean the out-called ones, the ones that he's chosen out, the group of people, you and I. That's the church that Jesus is referring to. The one that I'm saying you should not trust is the one that's a man-made institution. You may call it religion. That's what you should not trust solely. Now to us, the failure of our leadership is bad enough. But let's discover how God feels about it. Reading now Matthew Chapter 21, verse 33. These are the words of Jesus as he was telling a parable. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. You know, husbandmen are, husbandmen are farmers. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. 
when the Lord therefore the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? This is Jesus' question to those that were listening to his story. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men, and he will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus saith unto him, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof. Now what we just read is a fascinating scene. The scene is where Jesus is telling a story with the express intent of condemning the religious leadership of the day. Jesus is telling a story to the Pharisees, the chief priests, and the scribes about the church leadership. And it's actually this scene that's unfolding, the scene that I just read to you, is actually the culmination of a series of very contentious exchanges between our Lord and those that have been charged with guiding his people to himself. You think I'm rough on the leadership of God's people. You think I'm difficult on them. In fact, the entire 21st chapter of Matthew is a battle scene. And it all started with the parade, which is rather unusual because most battles end with a parade. This battle was actually caused by a parade. Let's read a well-known story. Matthew 21, verse 1. It's the story of a parade. And when they drew near unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethpage unto the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village over against you, and straightway ye shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, ye shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt the foal of an ass. Verse 6, And the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them, and brought the ass and the colt, and put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way, others cutting down branches from the trees, and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna means save. And when he was coming to Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? And the multitude said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. As I said, this is a very well-known story. 
Everyone's heard it. Even creasters. You know what a creaster is, right? A creaster is someone who only goes to church twice a year, Christmas and Easter. Even creasters know the story of the triumphal entry, as it's been called. Now, very quickly, this is one of the most important scenes in all the Bible, and its seriousness was not lost on the leadership of the Jewish people. Jesus, now this is really incredible to me because this was no accident. Jesus did precisely as he intended to do. Listen to me. His actions revealed his purpose. Jesus entered the capital, because that's what Jerusalem is. Remember the end of last year, Donald Trump said Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. Really had no impact because that's the way it's been. Jerusalem has always been the capital of Israel. And here was Jesus entering the capital of the country on a donkey. Well, that did not sit well with those that thought they owned it because he was entering Jerusalem as if he owned it. You see, you and I have been taught that this was just some quaint little scene. A few of the rabble sort of showing up, witnessing a lovely little procession consisting of one little timid, almost pitiful dreamer. Well, this was not what it was. This was not just some quaint little pitiful scene. And Jesus' enemies were not happy. You see, we in the 21st century are victims of our own ignorance. And the worst part of that is we don't even know it. We're ignorant of our own ignorance. Now, I don't blame you. I blame your leadership. I believe that this story has been kept from you. I believe that the leaders of the church don't want you to know this. That's what I mean. This is why I wrote this lesson. We've been cheated. Jesus rode into Jerusalem like a king. Jesus was establishing before the capital of the world, actually, that he was the king. And the leaders at that time didn't like it, and I suspect they don't like it now either. Jesus was entering Jerusalem like a king, not like some... See, they want us to believe that Jesus was just a really brilliant philosopher, that he was just entering in the city of Jerusalem to convince people to be nicer to each other. Jesus said he came with a sword in his hand. He didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. 
This was a far more pivotal moment than we've been told. It was certainly far more pivotal for those at that time. You see, before this, Jesus was merely a nuisance. He wasn't much more at that time up to that point than a radical preacher who happened to have some appeal among the country folk. Those ignorant hicks outside the city may have fallen for his ramblings, but up to that point, the people that mattered weren't too affected. But now, now the residents of the capital city, they were saying things like, here's David. They were referencing David, the king, the permanent throne of David, and they were shouting that towards Jesus. He was becoming a threat. Now you may be thinking, what's so arrogant about riding into town on a donkey? That makes him a threat? It sure does. You see, in our minds, this is just, well, cute. Oh, Eeyore is giving Jesus a ride. Not so in ancient Israel. You see, believe it or not, in ancient Jewish and Semitic tradition, donkeys were actually symbols of royalty. Throughout the Bible, royal processions included kings riding donkeys. Remember, Jesus didn't just settle for whatever transportation was available. He chose to ride a donkey. He ordered a donkey. He said, get me that donkey. The gospel narrative makes clear, in fact, that this was prearranged. The intention of Jesus was to put his total authority on display by riding like a king into the capital city. Matthew 21.4, all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. Now, I, I also think that part of the confusion for us is this word meek. We don't think of intimidating kings as meek, at least not the way we define that word today. We wouldn't imagine anyone being intimidated by a meek king, so we don't take this scene too seriously. Today, we think of the word meek as meaning someone who's a weakling, someone who lacks courage, or someone who allows others to take advantage of him. That's what we think meek is today. Meek and weak are sort of synonymous to our modern ears. But that's a relatively new interpretation of that word. When Jesus entered Jerusalem that way, 
frankly, it scared the bejeebers out of the Jewish leadership. It was the gauntlet being thrown down. This was the beginning of the battle that would eventually cost Jesus his life. I mean, if he had done this meekly as we interpret that word, this wouldn't have intimidated anyone. Nobody would have even noticed. Certainly the crowds wouldn't have been cutting down palm branches and mentioning the name of David. Well, the original word that gets translated into the English word meek there in King James is prouse. Now, I think that I'm not criticizing the King James translators because I think they used the best word available. It's just that we've changed that word in our modern times. And it's important for you to know that. Even as late as the end of the 19th century, the word meek meant something differently. Listen to a Webster's definition from the 19th century. It meant mild of temper. It meant gentle, not easily provoked or irritated, yielding, given to forbearance under injuries. So meek was actually a good match for this Greek word praus. But to be honest, I don't think it's even complete enough. You see, to a Greek person, praus means to be in control. To be prouse means you're not losing your temper. You're not prone to premature anger, that you're able to evaluate a situation properly. You're not in fear of anything. Someone that doesn't react rashly to external stress because they're confident, they're self-assured. You want to know the best defense against a bully? Show no fear. No one wants to get in a fight with someone who carries themselves without fear. As a, as a young child, I was bullied a lot. I finally had enough and decided to fight back and took a serious beating. But I wasn't teased anymore. I wasn't bullied anymore. Ask just about any woman what she looks for most in men, and the honest ones will tell you that they want a man who's confident. Confidence is a sign of strength. Jesus had the temerity to ride into their town as if he was in charge. He was riding a donkey not a horse. You see, the horse is a war animal in ancient Israel. In the beginning of this section, I told you that Jesus acted as if Jerusalem was already his. Riding a donkey, the animal of peace, the animal of confidence, the animal of a king, and it was chilling to those in charge. He was showing no fear. He was showing no anger. 
by not riding into town on a war animal, by not riding a horse, he was saying, why do you think I need to fight for what's already mine? He did not come at that point to fight, to grab what belonged to someone else. He rode on a donkey. This place is mine. He didn't have a suit of armor on. He didn't have a sword in his hand when he walked into Jerusalem. No need. They saw that as arrogance. That's what those petty little rulers in Jerusalem must have uttered. The arrogance. But I guarantee you, they trembled. He looked every bit like an in-charge king, and it scared them. You see, they wanted that rabble to remain ignorant about who Jesus really was. They didn't want the truth revealed. Watching the citizenry waving palms and shouting praises and evoking the name of David sent shivers down their backs because they thought they were in charge. And as I said, from that point on, for the rest of Jesus' life, which was not very long from that point on, Jesus was at war with the authorities. And listen, part of the reason why he rode into town on a donkey was that it didn't have to turn out like a war. This was Jesus giving them the opportunity to give in. This was when Jesus rode in like the king, he wanted them to say, I'm coming to you to, so you can see who I really am. The choice is now yours. Listen to what he said. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and sownest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens and under her wings, and ye would not. He didn't want to come on a horse at war. He will eventually because of this, because they did, they refused to recognize his kingship. He came in peace, and if they had just recognized and acknowledged his messiahship, everything would have been different. But they didn't. And that's why he has to come, and he will come that second time on a war horse. That's still off in our future. The Bible makes it clear he will come to Jerusalem on a war horse. And I believe it's because they didn't take heed when he came on a donkey. Now, all of that was to set the scene that surrounded the telling of the parable. Let's read it again just to get back on track. This is the parable again, Matthew 21, 33 onward. 
there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a winepress in it and built a tower and led it out to the husbandmen and went into a far country. Now get your spiritual ears on. Think about what this parable is about. By the way, I didn't hear this parable ever when I went to church. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went out into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. Verse 37, But last of all he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. They recognized him. Listen, this was no mistaken identification. They knew who he was. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and cast him out of the vineyard, and slew him. Verse 40. Now this is Jesus turning back to the religious leaders, and this is what he said. It was a question. When the Lord thereof of the vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? This is their answer. This is the religious leadership's answer. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? The same has become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation bringing forth the fruits thereof, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. Do you think so? But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. Now let me repeat what I say all the time when we come across this sort of thing. First of all, you should know this was the Gospel of Matthew. And you regulars know that the Gospel of Matthew was written in a way as a message to the Jews. The context of this parable is undoubtedly meant to instruct the nation of Israel. There's no question about that. That is the correct interpretation of this parable. However, that does not limit the application 
of this parable. And that's why I'm teaching it to you. This parable was written to instruct the nation of Israel, but its application is to the church currently. We are applying it to the church. We must learn from this parable because the church is now in a very similar position as the Jews were in Jesus's time. Jesus told this story to warn the Jewish leaders of his day, yes, but it's also a warning to, to the religious leaders of our own time. So with that in mind, let's go through this bit by bit. Yes, this is going to be Another long lesson. There was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and led it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. Now, as you know, some of the parables of Jesus actually take a little effort to unpack, but this is not one of those. This is a parable whose meaning is meant to be understood by all. Its meaning is unmistakable by design. The certain householder is no doubt God himself. Here we're told that the householder, the owner of the land planted, the owner of the land planted a vineyard. We are told that the householder planted a vineyard. Now, we don't plan on getting into too much detail on the symbology, but I do want to make a few comments. First of all, I don't believe that there's too much detail here. A lot of commentators and scholars try to make this little story more convoluted than Jesus had intended. They try to read into some of the details, perhaps what's not there. So we're going to keep it simple. There are symbols that we have to break down, but not as many as some may think. There was a certain householder, that's God, which planted a vineyard, that's the world, and hedged it round about. The householder hedged around the vineyard. He planted a vineyard and then hedged it round about. He built a hedge or a fence, we might call it, round about this vineyard. Now, hedges are built for a number of reasons. For example, a hedge, listen to me, is a way to separate out a piece of land. A hedge is a way to designate a portion of a lot for a specific purpose. From the very beginning, God made clear that he chose the Israelites out of the rest of mankind for a reason. God set them aside specifically. He set them apart. In Deuteronomy 7, 6, he says this, For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. Holy, as you know, means set apart. Doesn't mean they're 
any more special than anyone else. Doesn't mean they're nicer than anyone else or do gooder things. They're set apart. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people. That just means from out of all people from out of all people that are upon the face of the earth. The clear picture in this parable is the vineyard that's set apart for a defined purpose, and it demonstrates the special status of the Jews. Jesus is using in symbol a hedged roundabout vineyard. Something the householder, the owner of the land, set aside for a purpose. Jesus purposely uses that symbology so that those that heard the story knew immediately what he was talking about. So that's number one. That's the first thing we should realize concerning this hedge about business. Hedging something about is separating it apart. Listen, the ground is no different whether inside or outside the hedge, it's no different. It's the same ground. It's no holier than anything else from the nice, gooder perspective. It's just set apart. Same soil, set apart. Number one, that's number one. Number two, a hedge is built for the purpose of protection. That hedge was a fence. And that fence was meant to protect. Fences keep out the boogeyman. Not only did God set them apart as special, he protected them as special. And if you read the Old Testament, if you read the history books of the Old Testament, you should come to the conclusion that if the Jews had just done what God had told them, they would have never had to worry about food. They would have never had to worry about their enemies. They would have never had to worry about water or anything else that people in the desert had to worry about. If they would have just done as God had told them, they would have been completely and totally taken care of. God had hedged them about. That's what the manna tells us. That's what the striking of the, the rock where the water flowed from the rock tells us. That's what the promised land tells us. God was leading them to a place that they would never have to worry about their material needs ever again. God's word over and over and over and over tells us that God's intention for the Jews was to bless them materially. He had intended for them to be a protected people. Not only did he set them apart as special, he protected them as special. Again, Matthew 21, 33, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower. God made sure that their needs would be met. He made this vineyard a place that would protect and provide a place that would produce. And frankly, with a minimal amount of effort. 
certainly less effort than it took to plant, hedge about, and build a wine press and tower in. God had done all the work. The great householder did all the hard work. God set up the children of Israel for success. And then, in the story, Jesus says the householder let the vineyard out to husbandmen. In other gospels, it the designation between husbandmen and the people blends. The leadership and the people blends. Because God wants you to know just because you're not a leader doesn't let you off the hook. People lead by the will of the people. When the corruption of the church happens, it's because the people demand it. The point I'm trying to make is we're not just going to blame the leadership. We're going to blame the pews. The pews go right along with the destruction of the truth of the church. I just wanted to make sure that's clear. It's not just the leadership. It's not just you leering up at the pastor saying, you better listen to this parable, buddy. You're just as responsible. Want to make sure that's clear. Let's go back. The great householder created this vineyard that would provide for the people. He did everything necessary. And then he put the people in the vineyard so they could produce. He gave them what he set aside to protect them. He planted the vineyard. He put a wine press in it. He hedged it round about. He even put a tower on it to protect them. Then he lent, let it out to the husbandmen. And then he went off into a far country. Some say the householder's journey to the far country is meant to symbolize God's patience. Maybe so. He turned control of the day-to-day -day affairs, so to speak, of the children of Israel to their leaders and then gracefully and patiently and distantly allowed them their freedom. Listen. I've told you many times before, love cannot happen by force. You cannot learn to love someone if they don't give you the room to feel it. No relationship where one party controls all the actions of the other ever leads to love. That never leads to love. So the householder went into the far country. He wanted them to learn to love him. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. Again, this is not a very mysterious story. This is not something that's, that needs to be worked out. The lessons are obvious. The meaning of all of this is not hidden. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent the servants to the husbandmen. There was a purpose to God's choice of the nation of Israel, and God expected the leaders of the people to be responsible for achieving that purpose. God built that, the householder built that vineyard for a purpose. That vineyard was to produce fruit. He did most of the work, 
All they had to do was follow his instructions and continue what he had started and be, re, be mindful of their responsibilities. God designated who his deputies among the congregation would be, the priests, the judges, the kings, later the Pharisees, Sadducees, and scribes. And when it was time to reap his reap the benefits his provision was meant to produce, he sent his servants. When the time was right to gather in the fruits, he sent his servants. Clearly, he means the prophets. God waited a designated amount of time. He gave them enough time to produce fruit, Based on the provision he gave them, he sent in his servants, he sent his prophets to gather in the fruit. God will call for an accounting of your work. He did not create this world for you. You were created for it. You were created to produce in his vineyard. The nation of Israel was given a purpose. They thought, they were the purpose. Again, I say, don't think you're off the hook because you sit on the other side of the pulpit. Don't give the pastor a dirty look as if this is only for him or her. I've told you many times, God has called you to something. He has set you aside for something. He expects fruit from you. We must all hear all of God's word, God's words as if they're spoken directly to us. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. Now, this is a remarkable passage. This is a remarkable story because it's telling us the history of the Old Testament. Some of you may wonder if the Bible is true. Well, if you believe in Jesus, then you should believe the entire Bible is true because he just summarized it for us. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent the servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did it unto them likewise. Time and again, God sent his prophets to the people. They came to warn, they came to encourage, they came to motivate, they came to renew, and what they received in return was resistance and hatred and violence and death. But the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is, God didn't give up. You know, I thank God all the time that I'm not running the universe. I couldn't have this patience. Here we're shown the patience of the Father, even after his servants were so wrongfully treated, even after his messengers of mercy and correction were brutally regarded, God kept at it. 
He wouldn't give up on helping his children. Can you imagine what the first Greek or Roman must have thought when they heard about the one true God? Can you imagine what the first pagan cannibal in the Congo must have thought as those brave missionaries started sharing the gospel? A God of mercy, you say? A God who is patient? A God who is willing to forgive transgressions? There is no God like our God. Even after his kindness and love was rejected, he tried and tried to get the husbandmen, those in charge of the vineyard, to turn their hearts back to him. Even taking the greatest risk of all, the sacrifice of his son. There's no mystery to this story. And the husbandmen took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent, some say, last of all means that's it. There's no other chance. Once the sun comes, that's the end. I'm not sure I agree with that. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. But when, Because this isn't the end of the story. But the, when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. The last thing a crooked churchman wants to see is Jesus coming down that aisle. The last thing a corrupt pastor wants to hear as those trumpets heralding the return of Jesus on that war horse. You see, by virtue of their training, crooked or not, they know it's going to happen. And you know what? And this, by the way, answers the question as to whether belief without action is belief at all. And when the husbandmen saw the son, they said, this is the heir. They knew who he was. They, those husbandmen immediately recognized the son and it meant nothing to them. You know... My guess is that no one in Jerusalem that week had greater faith than those chief priests and Pharisees. When they saw that little parade entering the gates of the city, they knew exactly what was unfolding before them. And they didn't like it. And they thought they could stop it. You see, they knew what the prophecies said would happen. They knew the passage from Zechariah that Matthew quoted in verse 5? Can I tell you, no one knows better than the devil the futility of going to battle with Christ, but for some reason that doesn't stop him. Those foolish husbandmen knew exactly who the owner sent 
Jesus one time said, there will be some who will say, you know, we called you Lord, Lord. And he said, turn away from me. I knew you not. Just knowing your Bible, knowing how to quote your Bible means nothing. Living your Bible, now that's something. Those husbandmen knew who that son was. The Jewish leadership knew Jesus was the king when he came into Jerusalem like that. They knew it. When the, now we're going to read from the International Standard Version. When the tenant farmers saw his son, they told one another, this is the heir. Come on, let's kill him and get his inheritance. Do they really think they were going to get away with it? This should send chills down your spine. You will not get away with avoiding Jesus. The enemies of God know precisely what they're doing. They know who they're messing with, and yet they say, come on, let's kill him and get his inheritance. There is nothing more dangerous than a reckless, nothing-to-lose enemy. The audacity of God's foes is unbounded, and you need to know that. Now, that really isn't part of the message of this parable, but the truth strikes me nonetheless. So they grabbed him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now, I believe that Jesus paused right there. So they grabbed him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. I know Jesus, in my mind, I see Jesus pausing. You see, those Pharisees had murder in their heart. Those chief priests had murder in their heart. They thought it was a secret desire. But here Jesus shows them he knew what they were up to. His words were striking their target. Can you imagine? As he turned toward them, his, his eyes must have pierced these men to their souls. And then he asks, when the owner of the vineyard returns, what will he do to those farmers? Now, I'm not really proud of this, but I find this next bit actually sort of funny. I hate to say that because this is deathly serious, but I can't help it. Everyone knows what Jesus is driving at with this story. When the owner of the vineyard returns, what will he do to those farmers? That was the question for the Pharisees and the chief priests to answer. You know, panic and other forms of self-preservation make people do and say the most ridiculous thing. things. When the Lord, therefore, of this vineyard cometh, what will he do unto those husbandmen? They say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men, and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Why would you say that? Why would you say something like that? You know he's talking about you. 
Why? Well, what else could they say? Remember, this isn't just some intimate gathering. This wasn't Jesus and the Pharisees and the chief priest in the corner of a coffee shop somewhere. There was no doubt a crowd of onlookers, as there always seemed to be. These were men of reputation. These were men that prided themselves on their sense of justice. What else could they have said? He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. There was only one right answer. Listen, more than anything, self-righteous people want you to think they're pious. They'll do anything to uphold their reputation. These men were trapped. Jesus backed them into a corner and he happened to get the answer he wanted. He will miserably destroy those wicked men and let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. This is why I love God's word. This is why I love Jesus. Listen, if you don't worship this man, you should at least admire him. He's nothing short of brilliant. Divinity aside, even if you don't admit that he's the Son of God, okay, but come on. This was a genius move. Let me recommend, if you have time, read the entirety of chapter 21. In it, you will see displayed a king of unmatched ability. No need for a war horse. Jerusalem is his, and he got those unfruitful leaders to admit that their time was up. Clever is not a good enough word. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus didn't finish the story. The Pharisees did. Jesus got those men to reveal God's ultimate plan, and it's not going to be pretty if you're going to be on the wrong side of the hedge. That's the message. If you serve him, you're in good hands. If you don't serve him, then you should know you should. As Solomon said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven nor in the earth. Well said, Solomon. There, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in the heaven nor in the earth. This message applies to all of us. All of us. Yes. It was intended to expose the failures of the leadership of the nation of Israel. Yes. But it applies to you and me. God has put us all in charge of something. God has given us all a purpose. That's why he chose us. Why do you think you were born? Why do you think he called you to be saved? 
this message, this story is a wake-up call for all of us. But most importantly, this message is for those who God has given a people to bring up in the faith, myself included. Pastors, preachers, teachers, church administrators, yes, rabbis, Jewish scholars, and synagogue leaders. That's who should be focusing on this story. So many times we see well-intended men and women start out hearing and heeding their call. They start out realizing and, and appreciating the great honor and responsibility they've been blessed with only to eventually take their anointing as privilege. Too often, turning their call to service into a demand to be served. 11,000 square foot homes and $100,000 Bentleys and kissing rings and cheering for them when they hit the pulpit. We're all fooling ourselves if we think that God is going to stand by and let us neglect our duty, or worse yet, pervert it into a path for personal glory. Our Lord, through His parable, demonstrates that God will provide all we need. He's chosen us. He's take, he takes that seriously. He called us, but when he did so, he took on the responsibility of equipping us. I've told you that before. He gives us what we need, including, perhaps more important, most importantly, mercy and patience. God sent his son as the greatest sign of all of his desire to help. He literally pulled out all the stops. There was, he gave us his all when he sent his son. That's how serious he is to see this through. He says they will reverence my son. That was a fact. That wasn't an error. He didn't make a mistake. He said they will reverence my son. The choice is ours. Either we reverence him and seize upon the opportunity his grace gives us, or we reject him as the builders did the stone and suffer when that, with them when the stone becomes the head of the corner. Christ, that stone rejected by the builders, will either break the prison of your self-centered sinful ways, or he will grind you to powder. But by His grace, He's given us clear warning. Don't miss it. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search Scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in His plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.
timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.